was no evidence that governor that that mr noriega was involved in drugs no hard evidence until we indicted him does the nsa collect any type of data at all on millions or hundreds of millions of americans no sir it does not not wittingly have we ever tried to meddle in other countries elections oh probably but uh it was for the good of the system oh we don't mess around other people all right welcome to another episode of the rackets podcast i'm your host brian sadie um as you know this podcast it's, it's focused on organized crime but not necessarily the traditional definition um, when you think of like cartels and mafia groups. Um, I'll, 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 you know, I'll cover a lot of uh, information on that on that subject as well. But we're also going to focus on, you know, crooked politicians, crony capitalists, corrupt government officials, white collar uh, criminals, etc. So the first story that I want to talk about is um, has to do with really the, the traditional definition of organized crime. And there was a very historic uh, trial that concluded in, in Italy this month. Basically, several high-level government officials, um, some mob bosses were convicted. And it's, um, it's for events from pretty far back. It dates back actually to the early 90s, where um, the, the mafia, the Sicilian mafia, to be, uh, to be specific, they were responsible for this string of murders. And they were very public in nature. They were actually bombing different government officials, judges, um, actually some church leaders. This form of terrorism was really their their form of negotiation, basically gain more power. Anybody who's familiar with Silvio Berlusconi, the former leader of Italy, he actually denounced the ruling. And it, it's really not much of a coincidence. It, it's you know very well known that he has many ties to the mafia. But just to give you a little bit of backstory here, the bombing campaign was successful. That's what led to the, the corruption, and the bombing stopped in roughly 1993. Um, a year later, Sir, uh, Silvio Berlusconi, he's elected. The, the group that the, the Italian mafia has, it, it's, still, it's still very powerful. There were elections that are recently, and there's many credible reports involving election fraud, you know, vote buying, voter intimidation, etc., Still very powerful. On the other hand, the Italian American mafia here in the U.S. not 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 quite as powerful. They're still you know still making a ton of money, um, but again not as widely represented as say back in the 1970s. But there was a recent trial involving um, a former uh, Philadelphia mob boss uh, named Skinny Joey Merlino. He um, see, he left prison, I believe, in 2011, um, and he sort of tried to resurrect his image and moved to Boca Raton, opened up a restaurant. But a couple years ago, he was indicted, along with, I believe, about 45 other um, mobsters, on a number of charges, you know, extortion, gambling, you know, bootleg cigarettes, and actually um, health care fraud. It's alleged that they... Um, were involved in a $157 million scheme in which they bribed doctors to make unnecessary prescriptions, and then those same drugs would later be sold on the open market. It's really an indicator that 
organized crime and, and particularly the, the Italian American mafia, they're not just involved in the in the garden variety rackets of loan sharking, you know, gambling, drugs. They've moved into very sophisticated white collar crime as well. So this trial, uh, it's taken place recently and it actually resulted in a mistrial. The, the jury couldn't, couldn't come to a conclusion. And one of the really, um, disturbing parts of this trial is that Merlino apparently approached one of the jurors, uh, walked up to her, approached her, said her name. I think most people would view that as, as jury intimidation, but nonetheless, uh, again, it ended in a mistrial. But what happened um, later on, instead of going back to trial, what the prosecutors did was they agreed to a plea deal in which he just pleaded guilty to gambling charges, nothing else, to where the maximum penalty would be two years in prison. And other people would sort of view that as a victory. You, know, you got this mobster behind bars. I view it, again, I'm, I'm pro-legalization on, on so many of these different vice crimes. Why do we even allow the mobsters to control these types of markets. You know, gambling, there's several forms of gambling and casinos, and you can pretty much root out almost all of that organized crime influence, you know, create high tax paying jobs, regulate the, the industry to, to a point to where you can root out most of the corruption. And the point being that you can create a net positive for society, um, as opposed to when you push this in the black market, you just make all the conditions so much worse. On that same type of note, uh, there was a recent case in which actually 57 white supremacists were busted in Texas. Many of them, they were members of the Aryan Brotherhood um, and a bunch of other white supremacist groups. They were convicted on a number of charges, including kidnapping, you know, trafficking of meth, also a, a lesser known um, synthetic opioid called U. 47700 and just some of the details were just just really brutal one of their victims they believed that he had stolen about six hundred dollars worth of drugs so they kidnapped the guy they tortured him in fact they literally even cut off part of his finger um, and again when these kind of headlines come out it's presented that this is a victory this is a victory in the war on drugs and again my reaction is always the opposite because first of all you got 57 of these guys. There's, there's thousands of other gangsters here in this country. You, you haven't stopped the flow of drugs in any way. What you're doing is you're enabling these violent criminals uh, by prohibiting drugs, by pushing this stuff into the black market. What you're doing is you're rewarding the most violent offenders possible. I think it's important to note that drug policy, obviously, it's very destructive here in the U.S., but it's even more destructive throughout Latin America, in these areas that are the transshipment points and the production points in Latin America and Caribbean, the drug war has been, it's been incredibly devastating. And it is a part of this um, caravan of immigrants who are moving up through Latin America. There's been a lot of you know, coverage on this in the news. Thousands of these people, they're fleeing you know, their home countries. And there's many reasons why. A lot of it has to do with poverty. But a good percentage of this has to do with the role that organized crime has in their countries. In particular, Honduras, um, where you have MS-13, Collie, um, or I should say um, the, the 18th Street Gang, and 
in many cases, young people, they're, they're lured into this gang lifestyle by the money, by the power. But in many cases, they're also forced into the gang lifestyle. Not quite, it's not quite the same here in the U.S. Most of the time, it's, it's really the, uh, the carrot that, that draws them in. But in Latin America, and particularly Honduras, oftentimes it's the stick. A lot of these people, they're, they're running away from being extorted, being forced into gang life. They're, they're, they're running away from the violence that is a result of our drug policy. And again, that's not the case for every one of these people, but it, it is a major contributing factor. On a similar note, I want to talk about a recent report uh, that has to do with the Department of Health and Human Services, in which close to 1,500 kids were reported missing in this country. And there have been close to 180,000 minors who have traveled from outside of this country uh, without their parents seeking refugee status. And again, of that 180,000, close to 1,500 are reported missing. Some of this has to do with just the sheer numbers because there's just so many people, the government agency, they've had to reduce the standards for the vetting process for who those sponsors are. And unfortunately, in some cases, those sponsors have actually been human traffickers. Uh, PBS Frontline recently did a very impressive documentary called Trafficked in America, and it has to do with this exact same subject. Some young Guatemalan teens, they were trafficked into this country. In essence, the traffickers, uh, they took away all their wages. If the workers, if they ever tried to resist or, you know, threaten to leave, the traffickers threatened to kill their parents, um, among all kinds of different threats. And so these young kids, again, they're victims of human trafficking. Um, but meanwhile, this major, you know, food corporation just looked, looked the other way at just horrific conditions in which these people lived. I know it's an awful subject, but I, it's something that really needs to be brought up more often. Uh, whenever people hear the term human trafficking, they, they think of prostitution because that's the way the debate has been presented. If you look at the statistics, back in 2016, there were 241 um, federal cases of human trafficking, but only 13 of those cases involve legal labor uh, markets such as farming, domestic work, manufacturing, etc. Almost every other case was a, was a prostitution-related human trafficking case. Now, does that mean that, human tra uh, that prostitution is the, the leading contributor to human trafficking? No, it doesn't. In fact, uh, the International Labor Organization, they estimated that of the roughly 25 million uh, victims of human trafficking in the world, only about 19% of that has to do with the sex industry. The rest of it is uh, agriculture, restaurant work, etc. And the problem is that these kind of cases, they're very difficult to prosecute versus, you know, a federal investigator. They can, they can just go after the low-hanging fruit go bust some sort of escort agency and then call it a victory in the war on human trafficking. And it, it's just not the case. Uh, a few days ago, Interpol investigation in which roughly 350 um, human trafficking victims uh, were rescued throughout the Caribbean and Latin America. These were victims in Barbados, Antigua, Brazil, Venezuela, Guyana, 
some of the victims were um, forced into the sex industry, but the vast majority of them had to work on work in factories, farms, mines, etc. So the point being, this is a, a very big problem, um, but unfortunately, our federal resources really aren't really pushed into the area where the majority of the victims are. Instead, it's sort of going after that, again, that, that low-hanging fruit. And the thing is, again, we don't really hear much about this type of the labor trafficking aspect of human trafficking. And again, there, this information is out there. It just doesn't get a whole lot of media coverage. Although there is a related story in the Daily Beast about a lawsuit against the Pentagon contractor Mantech. This company received an over $2 billion contract to service the Army's armored vehicles. However, this lawsuit states that several of the workers were victims of human trafficking. It's alleged that Mantech's employees actually took away those workers' work permits, and essentially this, they were, these people were forced into this labor, and into dangerous labor at that. The company is also accused of defrauding the government. And that wouldn't be a first offense for Mantech. Back in 2016, that company had to pay out a judgment of over $2 million to a couple of the company's whistleblowers. Uh, they were employees who pointed out that the company had overbilled the government by over $9 million. And <laughs> for that, for those actions, they were fired by Mantech. Again, suffice it to say, no, nobody actually goes to prison for this type of crime. This is a powerful company. And as you know, those kind of um, corporations, they don't, they don't actually face any kind of real penalty. They pay a fine and they just, you know, go back to usual. And in fact, Mantech has continued to get very lucrative contracts. And, and again, this isn't specifically just this one company. This is, that's something really sector wide, um, particularly in the military industrial complex. And really on that subject of the military industrial complex, several other companies that have contracted with the Department of Defense have been guilty of also using trafficked labor. One of the main reasons is that there are lower enlistment numbers in the military. So what they have to do is outsource a lot of the, you know, the non-warfare um, services such as, you know, food preparation, laundry, that, that kind of stuff. And what they'll do is they'll hire an outsourcing company. But unfortunately, in, in several cases, these outsourcing companies are actual human traffickers. They lure migrant workers into these dangerous war zones with you know, promises of a, of a certain wage. Those workers, they never actually get that certain wage. And, you know, they're usually warehoused in these tiny, you know, horrible conditions. And they're, the traffickers give them these these fees that can't be paid with those with those wages, so they basically force them into in indentured servitude, which again, it, again, is just really human trafficking, and it's an issue that again is not very widely known. And I have to point to the president of the United States, Donald Trump. He's tried to brand himself as tough on crime because he, you know, he signed a sex trafficking bill, but. There was a story that came out during the 2016 campaign. Uh, the New York Times did this, covered the story, so did Vice. They did really excellent reporting. And it had to do with a property in Dubai, a golf course that, that licensed Donald Trump's name. 
Um, again, it's not his personal property, but again, they licensed his name. But the property, by all indications, was constructed with workers who were victims of human trafficking. Uh, again, they were migrants from different countries who were lured to Dubai with promises for certain wages, that, and those promises were not kept. You know, the outsourced company that, that brought them there, again, assessed them fees that you know, they were impossible to pay back, you know, took away their documents. Again, we're, we're talking about human trafficking. And that relates to uh, another story. To be a, a strip club dancer in San Diego, you have to apply for a license. And the city of San Diego, they're increasing the fees. And the way they're justifying these fees is that they say they have to pay the police to quote-unquote monitor these clubs to, in order to prevent um, human trafficking or sex trafficking. So, I mean, I'll, I'll just kind of leave it at that. Um, it's also part of a, a series of, of different fees by the city in order to sort of raise money. It sort of <laughs> makes me think about um, this, the topic of greedy politicians. And in the last episode, uh, we spoke a little bit about the former representative from Texas, Steve Stockman. Uh, at that point, his trial was being conducted. Uh, but since then, he has been convicted on 23 of 24 counts, all, all basic sort of corruption type charges. It was uh, mail wire fraud, uh, money laundering, campaign finance, about one and a quarter million dollars um, from two major donors was issued to Steve Stockman. Him and his representatives, they set up these fake nonprofit groups, and then that was basically working as a slush fund for him. One of the things that I found interesting, in one instance, they used that slush fund to send money to the Port Arthur newspaper. They gave him 30 grand. The fake dummy organization that it was sent from was apparently the quote-unquote Egyptian-American Friendship Society. Another uh, pretty interesting aspect from his trial was the fact that his defense centered reportedly solely upon this this idea that his donors didn't care, you know, how the money was spent as long as some of it went towards his campaign. In other words, they really wouldn't care if he kept some of that money for his own personal use or, or for whatever means. Apparently, that was really the, the crux of his defense, according to one of the witnesses. He's just one. There's several very crooked politicians. And recently, there was this quote that Mick Mulvaney, you know, he's a former congressional rep. He's now the, uh, the director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and the Office of Management and Budget. He was holding um, a conference with a bunch of banking industry types, lobbyists, and he said, quote unquote, if you're a lobbyist who never gave us money, I didn't talk to you. If you're a lobbyist who gave us money, I might talk to you. And that was basically the advice he gave to these people was just this openly corrupt. I mean, it's just to me, it's just jaw dropping. But that's that. Again, that's what he said in front of a group of roughly a thousand people or so. And it's just acknowledging the, the open and legal corruption within our system. You know, a lot of people, they're, they're aware that the lobbyists, there, there's a lot of ways of corrupting politicians. For one, you know, there's this sort of revolving door in which uh, the lobbyists will approach uh, a certain politician. The politician gives them favorable le legislation. Then he ends up working for that lobbying firm for like 10 times what he made uh, while working in Congress. 
it kind of leads to the, the title of this podcast or, or this particular episode. And it's a, it's a quote that I love by the famous Greek fabulist Aesop. And the quote is, we hang the petty thieves and appoint the great ones to public office. <laughs> With that in mind, there's a story in the Detroit Free Press titled, I'm not as bad as the politicians that I bribed. It's about um, a guy named Chuck Rizzo, who is recently sentenced to five and a half years in prison uh, for bribing local officials. He, um, he was the uh, CEO of a local trash company that obviously depended upon contracts. But it brings up an interesting question, because um, his attorneys say that the, the politicians were the ones to first initiate this, this corrupt behavior. But, you know, after he was busted, what he did was he started to work undercover and he ended up actually leading to 20 different officials being indicted. You know, he would wear a wire and so forth. So, but, you know, it leads to that question, who, you know, who is more guilty? Who is more culpable? You know, the politician who accepts the bribe or the, uh, who issues the bribe? Personally, either in both circumstances, I still consider the politician to be more uh, to be the more guilty party, obviously when it's when the politician is the one who who initiates that sort of demands the bribe, or even in the case where that person is solicited, I, again that's an elected official. I still view that person as the more guilty party. But what he brings up in this case is again Chuck Rizzo received five and a half years in prison, but none of the politicians received um, a heavier sentence than him. So, you know, while we're on the subject of um, corrupt politicians, um, there was a very interesting tape that was leaked recently, and it had to do with the Democratic National Committee. And it involved a very progressive candidate for Congress in, in Colorado named Levi Tilleman. But on this tape, he was pressured by, you know, a high-level you know, Democrat to, to drop out of the race. And that person was actually Representative Steny Hoyer from Maryland. He's a, to say the least, he's very high level in the Democratic Party. He's actually the minority whip. He's been in Congress for over three decades. Again, the guy obviously has a lot of pull. And on the tape, he actually said that this, the decision was already made um, to push him out. In other words, um, you know, the registered Democrats in, in Colorado, their opinion doesn't matter. You know, good old boss tweet. You know, his opinion, that's what matters. <laughs> Keep in mind that the Democratic Party just recently filed a lawsuit against Donald Trump for the allegations involving WikiLeaks and the Russians. But, you you know, you have to remember that about a year earlier, the Democratic National Party was, was sued by a group of Bernie supporters. And that had to do with all the information that came out from the WikiLeaks, you know, showing that that the, the DNC actively conspired against Bernie to, to keep him from getting the nomination. So again, they're working in the exact opposition of what their, their party is supposed to stand for, i.e., you know, democratic principles. On the last story that I would um, point to is actually um, an op-ed in the New York Times called, Do Taxpayers Know They're Handing Out Billions to Corporations? It's by a professor from the University of Texas, Nathan M. Jensen. Um, and th I mean, there's a just really a ton of just eye-opening revelations in there. The first thing that I'd point to is um, he estimates that there's anywhere from about 45 to $80 billion 
in subsidies paid from states and local governments to corporations. Now, on the surface, that's probably not really very surprising to many people. Uh, but first of all, he's not able to get an accurate number because there isn't much transparency. It's not you know, a lack of research on his part. It's just that there, there's so much secrecy um, with this type of legislation. And again, there's many revelations in, in this piece, but the biggest thing that I think will catch many people by surprise, it has to do with the, the really sweetheart deals that were given to Amazon by the state of Maryland. In particular, this one, yeah, this one will really catch up. Every dollar paid in state taxes by Maryland Amazon workers is actually paid back from the state of Maryland to Amazon. Now again, that, that was hard for me to even get that out there. It's just such a it's such a foreign concept. But yes, Amazon was able to negotiate that deal to where all of the all of their workers' wages that were paid to the state and state taxes are actually paid back to Amazon. It's one of just so many of these kind of crooked deals. And what it really comes down to is so many of these companies, what they do is they, they threaten to leave. You can see the other side of it. If you're if you're a high-level politician in that state, you don't want to be the person in charge when, when a major employer left town. You know, I, I get it. But what we're doing with these types of incentives, we're creating a system where it's sort of like the too big to fail. You know, these companies, they're too big to leave. But again, to get back to just that one topic of the workers' money, tax money being paid back to the corporation, I, I believe Michael Moore brought up that topic in his uh, capitalism documentary. Uh, but, you know, I haven't really heard too many figures in the media bring up this issue. Um, the one person who I have is uh, David K. Johnston. And a lot of people, they're familiar with him due to his extensive work on Donald Trump. You know, he's written a couple books about him. Guy's a really, really strong investigative journalist. But he wrote an article back in 2012, and he estimated that there were 2,700 companies that get this same kind of sweetheart deal in which their state tax money is paid back to the corporation. And he's, you know, he's exposed all kinds of corporate welfare. Now, a lot of people on the right, you know, they're really not even disturbed by it. They sort of view it as that money should be in the private sector anyway. You know, less money in the government's hands is better, you know, better for everyone. And I, I understand their point of view, but I, I fully disagree. And the reason is, again, this is crony capitalism. It, it is not a free market system. And that's a system where the government is picking and choosing the winners. That's not a level playing field. So in other words, we have the maximum corporate tax rate in this country, I believe is 39%, but the actual effective rate of what of what the, the average company pays is far less. Now that's also skewed. You know, your, your small mom and pop store, they're paying whatever the, the actual rate is because they don't have lobbyists to go and get them sweetheart, you know, tax loopholes. So they end up paying a much higher rate than these mega corporations. Personally, uh, you know, I, I, I do favor lower taxes, but I want it across the board to where it's a level playing field to where, you know, the mom and pop, you know, business can compete fairly with an Amazon. Again, you can understand why a politician would under pressure would sort of give away these subsidies. But again, we're just creating this really perverse playing field that, that 
it is not good for our society in general. So know that that will be the final story for today. Um, I've got a ton of other content. This, I try to be as concise as possible. Um, you can look to the show notes where I'll, I have everything linked um, as far as what was discussed today. Uh, but again, you can go on to my website, briansadie.com. There's a ton of other stories, you know, along these lines. If you enjoy the podcast, hey, please give it, a, you know, give it a five-star review. You know, subscribe, tell your friends. If you'd like to support it, you know, hey, support my work by going out and buying a copy of my three-book series, Rackets. It's about the legalization of drugs and gambling and the decriminalization of prostitution. Lastly, I'd like to thank you for listening to the Rackets podcast. Have a great day. It's a big club, and you ain't in it. I am concerned that the size of some of these institutions becomes so large that it does become difficult for us to um, to prosecute. You're going to have a license. Price is two hundred and fifty thousand dollars plus a monthly payment of five percent of the gross of all four hotels in the store. Corleone.